The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 213. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, welcome to Dose of Leadership. Richard Ryerson here. Thank you, as always, to tuning into the show. This is the show where we talk about leadership because the reality is leadership is for all of us. It's not about the position, the title. You can lead from where you're at, no matter where you're planted. In fact, you're obligated to it sometimes. We're all going to be called to leadership. I mean, somebody right now is looking to you for influence and guidance. So it's in our best interest to learn all we can about leadership. And that's what this show focuses on. To hear about the journey, we bring on faith-based leaders, military leaders, CEOs, everyday folks like you and I to talk about leadership. And if you like what you hear on this show, if you're brand new, if you haven't done so, please take the time to download this device to your mobile device. If you get an Apple device, the podcast app, the free app is where you can do it. Subscribe, leave a rating and review on iTunes. Helps so much for the visibility of the show. If you got an Android device, Stitcher is a great free app that you can take this show on the road with you. Again, subscribe. Leave a rating and review, and again, it does so much. I'm so thankful when you do leave those rating and reviews, and it means so much. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen to the show. Also, if you're looking for a coach or a speaker, as always, you can check out my services. Go to doseofleadership.com, and you can learn more about me. If you need an individual coach, you can always reach out to me, and I give you a free 30-minute session to see where you're at, see if it works for you. I'd like to hear from you, Richard at doseofleadership.com. Always interested to know where you're at in your leadership journey. And, you know, answer every email. It may take me a little while, but I will get to them eventually. I'd love to hear from you. Again, Richard at doseofleadership.com or at the contact me section on my website. All right, great guest today, Bob Chapman, the chairman and CEO of Barry Waymiller. It was a company that was um, highlighted in Simon Sinek's latest book, Leaders Eat Last. And Simon talked about it on our episode here. And Bob's a great guy. He's just, you know, well, Barry Waymiller is just such a unique organization. It really is one of those organizations. They're based in St. Louis. And I highly encourage you to go check out BarryWaymiller.com and just look at them and look at what their uh, philosophy is. It's all about building a better world. They have this truly human leadership culture in their, in their business. It's all about personal growth initiatives, helping their employees become their best selves because their philosophy is if they bring out the best in their employees, they're going to give their best. And so, you know, it just proves and shows that there are organizations out there that are focused on personal growth and development. You know, even though the company, and Bob, has been in this organization from uh, the CEO since 1975, at age 30, after his uh, father passed away suddenly, 
And by 1985, he stabilized this struggling bottle washer and pasteurizer business. And he began to diversify this business. And, and, um, he, and as Simon said in the book, and we talk about it in this interview, you know, Bob came from kind of a traditional old school background and he kind of transformed in this great personal transformative leader. And it's just an interesting transformation. And Bob is just a great soul. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with him. So without further ado, here's Bob Chapman, the chairman and CEO of Barry Waymiller. Well, I'm so excited to finally have Bob Chapman on my show. Bob, welcome to Dose of Leadership. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you know, I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since I talked to Simon, and I know I read his book, and then I and he put me in contact with you. I've been looking forward to this. Let's bring our listeners up to speed. Tell us just a quick a little bit more about your company, Barry Waymiller, and how you came uh, to the helm of that. Uh, well, Barry Waymiller Company is a capital provider of equipment. We make uh, it's a combination of seventy four acquisitions, so we make a lot of different types of equipment uh, in the field of packaging. So. A can of soda would be impacted by our machinery, a bottle of shampoo, a bag of Fritos. So we make packaging equipment. That's kind of our 130-year history. Uh, but then we also make equipment for the tissue industry, toilet and facial tissues to produce it. People like Kimberly Clark, Georgia Pacific. And we also make uh, corrugated equipment. So we, we sell equipment to people like International Paper and Rock 10 who produce corrugated box board and also produce boxes. So those are kind of our three equipment platforms. And then we have a very vibrant uh, national consulting practice in the field of engineering consulting to packaging companies. And so that that composes about a $2 billion company. Uh, we began in 1989 with a $20 million company. At the time, we began these growth initiatives 74 acquisitions later, we're about a $2 billion company that operate all over the world with operations in Germany, Hungary, England, France, uh, India, uh, Italy. Uh, so we have people all over the world. So what I'm, so what we're going to talk about are really, our sense, are global human issues. So the company, again, is privately held. Uh, majority by my family, but we also have outside investors. So it's kind of a, a privately held company run like a publicly traded company with, uh, with the good fundamentals. And we've, we've grown since 1989. Uh, and we've created shareholder value at around 15% a year compounded for 25 years. Oh, that's just fantastic. And what I love about you is like you talk about it that it's as leaders, especially in the business arena, it's our responsibility to create a caring work environment in which people can realize their gifts, develop their talents, and feel a genuine sense of fulfillment for their contributions in pursuit of a shared vision. Those are your direct words from your from your bio. I mean, that resonates with me completely. Why do companies struggle so much with that type of a vision? We talk about it a lot. You guys seem to be you know, walking the talk, if you are walking the walk. So how... What's different about you compared to, say, a standard Fortune 500 company? Well, it's just, it's not even a Fortune 500 company to our knowledge uh, from the people like Simon Sinek and Bill Urey and Amy Cuddy and uh, Raj Sizzoto and Srikumar, all the people that have come in out of interest to look at our business. The most common statement, Richard, is they have, this is a statement they make, I have never seen anything like this. And Simon Sinek said, I'm no longer a nutty idealist because if it exists, it must be possible. Right. Uh, and so 
I would say to you, every, every journey in life is unique. Our journey has been shaped by what I'll call relevation, revelations of leadership ideas, stimulated not by my business background, but stimulated by my parenting background, raising our family, which Cynthia and I took very seriously, uh, about how do we be good stewards of the precious children that we were had the opportunity to bring into our family. Um, and what happened is, you know, on the one side, I was taught in the undergraduate accounting at Indiana, MBA at Michigan, Price Waterhouse, and then Barry Wemmer. So I had kind of the traditional, if you will, management practice growth on the one side. And then I got into business and I saw practices. But on the, on the human side, I was trying to be a good steward of my family. And what happened over the 80s and 90s is that I realized that everything I learned as a, to be a good parent was about good leadership. Everything I learned in business was wrong it, it, because it's about numbers and shareholder value. It is not about human value. And I thought, and so basically I replaced the things I learned in my education with the things I learned about parenting. Mm. So we, we describe leadership, Richard, as the stewardship of the lives that are entrusted to us. We describe parenting as the stewardship of the lives entrusted to us. They're identical. They're, and it's a little bit like Leaders Eat Last. I always say Leaders Eat Last has not the book that Simon wrote. It has nothing to do with eating. It has to do with a sense of responsibility in the military for the men under your command. Okay, and you will sacrifice your life, your needs, to the needs of your men who serve the, uh, you well. And as Simon would say, why don't our leaders look at the people who serve our companies in the same way the military looks at it? And he saw the contrast, and, he, and his book brought out the dramatic contrast. So I would say to you that when I go back and I, I think back on my journey, my life journey, and I look at what happened in, if you will, corporate industrial America. If you think of the industrial revolution, when Henry Ford started making Model T Fords and we started mass production, mass production was about mass production. It was not about human dignity. It was about, not about human growth. But we give great credit to the industrial revolution for, for raising the standard of living in our country, in small communities, shoe factories and motor, Motorola TV factories and appliance factories in, in Evansville, Indiana. We, we had the, the benefits, the economic benefits of this. And we actually, Henry Ford, paid people fairly well compared to what they could make on a farm. But we took a farmer who had a craft and a pride in his craft, but an unpredictable you know, income stream. And we gave him a job in a factory. And he went from being a craftsman in his trade of, of working with leather or farming or, or others. And we put him in a factory and he put on a hubcap every 15 seconds. He put on a hubcap and we measured how fast he put on the hubcap. And then we found out maybe we could get him to do it in 12 seconds. And why? Not to create a meaning, more meaningful role for this gentleman or woman that is doing it because we wanted to make more money. 
right? Okay. We wanted to get our costs down so people would buy more cars. We were enamored with mass production and the wealth it created. And when were unions formed, Richard? At the very time of mass production. Right. Because we got greedy. We started making a lot of money by being able to bring people, which we needed, so we maybe even were nice to them, even though those old factories weren't very nice and dingy and dark. And when were unions formed? To protect workers from the greed, the wealth created from mass production, okay? Because we didn't care about the people. We didn't do it to improve the living of people who were on the farm. We did it to make money. We had this idea, we became enamored with mass production and the technology they evolved. And then all of a sudden, Richard came along in the 1950s and maybe the early 60s, uh, a word I remember as a child was Japanese imports. And yeah. it meant cheap. Okay, so all of a sudden America started getting international competition and and prices were lower than our prices because we could do whatever we want because we, we were shipping around the world. We were hiring people, giving them better vacations, better benefits because we were making, we needed people. So we had to do things to attract people and keep people. But the minute Japanese imports came on and lower price said, well, guess I can't afford to pay that skilled assembly worker $10 an hour in Evansville or Toledo, Ohio anymore because I can pay a person in Arkansas half of that. So we started migrating in response to this to maintain our profits and compete. We had to move those, if you will, good paying jobs, not highly dignified because you were just a clog in the wheel. And we started moving to, uh, to Arkansas, then we moved to Mexico, then we moved to Brazil, and now we moved to China. Constantly in search of somebody who would work for some for considerably less than the last person. Yeah, that whole idea, that whole scientific management theory, that was, it's really insidious. And you, know, and you did point out the benefits, of course. It, it gave us a whole different economy and uh, maybe you could argue affordable products and a whole different standard of living, but you're right, at what price? And again, you look at that kind of mindset of everything is around the factory and it's around the machine and the efficiencies. And that whole Frederick Wenzel Taylor mindset of where managers and workers are separated and workers are kind of, you know, they just need to be told what to do. There's what one right way to do things. I mean, all that is still with us in so many ways. Um, oh, it is. It's, it's with us in so many ways. And what happened after, if you will, if we, the, the migration to somebody who would work for next to nothing so we could compete in the world, we never, in that process, there was nothing about enriching the experience of our team members so that they could compete. We just we just said, I can't afford to pay somebody $10 an hour if I can pay them in Arkansas $5 an hour or $2 an hour in Mexico or, or 50 cents an hour in China. So we migrated. And it was very easy. You could do the mathematical calculation real easy. And it made it overwhelmingly uh, important to move to these to compete in the world for these major companies with consumer pride. And then all of a sudden we saw it wasn't Japanese imports from a cheap standpoint, it was Toyota and quality. Okay. And, and so all of a sudden quality took us back. And so we went over and studied Toyota and came up with the idea of lean to eliminate waste. It was never to enrich the experience. It was to eliminate waste. What does lean mean? The elimination of waste. Now, I always ask people when I gave a talk yesterday and I said, how many of you are motivated to eliminate waste? Okay. The sad thing is 
What we missed on that process was the beauty of the concepts we studied at Toyota should have been that we began listening to our people and validating their worth because they have ideas. They don't want to waste their time any more than we want them to waste their time because it's one thing for us to stand back and see people wasted, but people don't enjoy processes that waste their time. So again, we developed a new process was never about to enrich the experience of our team members. It was about to improve our profitability and improve our competitiveness. So in my sense, in our journey from the, from the farmer, the craftsman, to the industrial worker, to, uh, to, the, to moving to lower cost markets to compete, to embracing lean to, to compete, it was never about allowing people to express their gifts fully, okay? And, and so that's the piece that we've missed and that's the piece that we have discovered in our journey. People are capable of doing amazing things if we just give them the environment that they can discover, develop, share, and be appreciated for their gifts. People are amazing. So I would say to you, that is what we have learned, Richard, along the journey, is that leadership, not the problem is, again, I took management classes, got a management degree, got a job in management. So what did I try and do, Richard? I tried to manage. Right. Because I thought the good paying jobs were the people that were smarter than the other people. And we could tell people what to do. Why would I ask somebody who works for me, uh, what we ought to do, because that would imply he's smarter than I am. And therefore, I wouldn't be able to justify my comp and my office and my car and my position. So we we felt good about telling people what to do. It gave us uh, good feelings that I, no wonder they gave me that job, because people come in and ask me what to do, and I tell them. So I, I think the point to you is that we have never learned what leadership is. We We developed managers who tell people what to do. And we have discovered, you know, we've, our company is a combination of 74 acquisitions. We've probably looked at five to 600 companies to buy 74 companies. And we have seen so much brokenness in this world uh, where the human side has never been allowed to develop the real potential of people. And it's amazing what ordinary people can do in a, in a nurturing environment. Oh, I give responsible freedom. I agree with you 100%. I mean, I think, that, you know, I know one thing that I've always battled over the last 14 years in the corporate arena, when I talk about these in what, what uh, the so-called experts, and I'm using air quotes as, are intangible items. When I talk about leadership, when I talk about people, when I talk about creativity, when I talk about decision-making at the lowest level, you know, the devil advocates are come back to me and say, well, look, that's all nice and well, but that's not how you make a profit and run a business. And it drives me absolutely crazy. I mean, you're obviously making it happen. If you act, acquire a company or walk into a situation where a culture is like that, how do you think it would, and it's a, it's like turning, you know, a ship a long way. How do you start to change that culture? What What is the first thing somebody can do, do you think? Well, it's interesting. I was just on the coast of France. Uh, I think it's called, it's QMP, or it's a coastal village of France, uh, kind of like Cape Cod of France. It's in the um, Brittany area of France. And, and I was with, if you will, the French Workers Council, which is the, the body of people elected by their fellow team members to represent them. So it, it represents everybody other than senior management of the company. It's required by law in France. 
And we're, we're just acquiring this 23 million euro business to be a part of our uh, Akron, Ohio uh, business nomadic scale. And I, and I met with the workers council and you can't, you know, French are kind of known for uh, uh, a difficult place to do business. We see a lot of publicity on unions taking captive executives in France and things. So it's, it's not got a good image. I have found in our, in the, two situations, one in Paris and now one in Camper, France, unbelievable interest in uh, uh, our true human leadership. And I sat with these people and the one gentleman who was 64 years old, who's, uh, he also represents the national, uh, I think, uh, uh, workers council, but he, he sits in our company. He, he's going to retire in 10 months. So I assume he's 64, 65 in that. And he sat there and said to me, after they said, we form, we do want to approve this. We do want to move forward uh, based on interviewing our fellow team members in Paris. He said, I've been waiting for you for 32 years. <laughs> and it, 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 it almost made me cry because here were people who desperately wanted desperately wanted to be a part of an organization that cared about it. So I'd say to you, Richard, truly human leadership is like feeding candy to kids. People are people genuinely everywhere at every level want to know that who they are and what they do matters. Sure. And when I walk in and sit down and I gave a a talk to the hundred employees in this plant, I talked to the workers councils and the receptivity, it was, it was like seeing starving people, being offered a, a, a scrumptious meal. It was amazing to see the reaction to, and this was based upon them driving up three or four hours to Paris and talking to our team members in Paris who have been a part of our organization for the last year. So I have seen us in, you know, getting 74 acquisitions. And in my opinion, if you fly into any one of our businesses, you won't notice the difference. It all seems like one caring community because there is such a hunger for it, Richard. Oh yeah, it is. It's. I tell people it's the easiest thing I do because when you walk in and tell people we care about you, it's not your products that we want. It's we want you and your talents, and we want you to be a part of our organization. The reaction is just they cry, they they they're emotional because they they can't and it's they almost can't believe it because. Of, the, of their history of various owners or jobs. They want to believe it, but it's hard to believe it's not just words. And when they, when they, when they go visit our team members, I mean, a year ago when the, when the company we bought in Paris, again, their, their workers' council had to prove it. Six members of their workers' council flew to Italy uh, to talk to our workers' council in Luca, Italy, and they spent three or four hours together, and the French workers council members walked out of the meeting with our italian works council members and said this is too good to be true and that's exactly what they said and they flew back to paris and voted six to nothing in favor of our transaction and then they just told the workers council from our coastal uh, business we're just acquiring and now the people in the coastal village say this is too good to be true so it's the, the appetite in the world, Richard, is amazing, uh, and and I mean in every company, and, and whether you're in a hospital, whether you're uh, in a university campus, the need for 
feeling that you matter and that people care about you is a tremendous hunger in our country right now. I agree you with you. What do you say to those folks who, who say, well, hey, that, that all sounds good to begin. It's, it's a little touchy-feely, Bob. I mean, you know, we're, we're running a business here, and the realities are this guy next to me is making it cheaper than, than you're making it. Um, how do you compete with that? And it's, you know, to, to say that you matter uh, doesn't necessarily make a more profitable product. What do you say to that person who comes at you that way? Well, you know, Richard, I, I say when you walk by a machine tool in your plant or some equipment you bought and it's running at half capacity, most people would say, hey, we need to do something. We spent 300000 we spent $400,000 on that machine tool that's running at half capacity and clearly we're not realizing the value of that machine tool. And so we put industrial engineers on and we get it up to 98% capacity, whatever. And we say, okay, that's responsible. When you walk by any person in our organization today, and you know that 88% of all people who work in this country feel they work for an organization that does not care about them. Gallup says three out of four people in this country, three out of four people are disengaged in their job. Yep. When you talk about 74% of our, and we have the healthcare crisis burdening us with loss of productivity, absenteeism, healthcare costs, insurance costs. And you say, you know, what are we gonna do about that uh, to solve that government? And yet 74% of all illnesses are chronic. The largest cause of chronic illness is stress. And the biggest cause of stress is work. And you say, wait, you're, you've got people that are disengaged, that are experiencing healthcare. What are you doing about it? Because how can you possibly compete in the world when your people are working at half speed at best? They're doing what they have to do to not get fired. Right. Okay? right. Or they're doing what they have to do to get promoted because they need to improve their life. So so I'd say to anybody, how can you possibly run an organization compete in the world when you have people who you've invited in the organization who are clearly not sharing their greatest gifts with you? That is irresponsible, just like running a machine tool is irresponsible, right? It's irresponsible to invite your accounting department, your sales department in the room and have them doing what it takes to do to not get fired. Right. Okay. Yeah, and that Simon calls it the circle of safety. He's an anthropologist, Simon. When Simon goes back and he looks at early society, you know, remember the Indian tribes sat in circles of safety. They, right. You know, the, and people to defend themselves from the outside. What what Simon observed in organizations, people are defending themselves from the inside. Okay. That that's the observation. I'm just trying to keep my job. I don't, I'm not worried about the guy next to me. I'm just worried about keeping my job because I need it. And I've, you know, I've seen people laid off. I've seen people fired. I've seen people not promoted. I'm just trying to play the game. So how can you possibly run an organization and have people in the organization and know that you are clearly not allowing them to share their gifts fully? So here's a company in the middle of America, in industrial America, competing with the world that has grown its share price 15% a year for 25 years in a row, you know, Compound growth of over years. So we are clearly not a nonprofit organization. And we did it not because we invented a new invention, because we invented a new process of leadership. Okay? Right. It is our leadership practices where we allow people to flourish, to thrive, to be appreciated, and to grow. That is what creates competitive organizations that create value for all stakeholders, not just the shareholders. Right. So your focus has got to be on all your stakeholders, 
not just yourself, because that singular focus is destroying our companies and the culture. So Does that make so sense? It's, you know, it makes perfect sense. And, and I think, so what do you do at your company, which again, what I profess, what I th- wish I would see more of is again, pushing that kind of leadership responsibility throughout the entire organization. It's less about position and title and an understanding that most of your, or a lot of your great ideas, your great solutions, your great efficiencies are going to come from those people that are on that front line, working that press machine, that have eyes on the customers, that have contact with the customers. Um, is, is that, is that part of your culture? Do you, would you agree with that? All right. Again, everything I learned in business school was wrong and everything I learned <laughs> in was right. So we went back to the point leadership is allowing your people to, to be their best towards a common vision. So what we do is we, we create a vision for every business with our team members. Where do you want where are you taking your business? Why do you want to go there? And when you get there, why will you take your people to a better place? And then what strategies do you have? Okay, so I so I see you're going in the right direction, a good process. How are you gonna get there? And so we engage people in the process of, of, of defining our future and where we're going. How can you go anywhere? How can you make any decision if you don't know where you're going? How, if you don't know you're driving to New York, how do you know where to go in your car? Instead of just, well, I'm gonna go down the block and then I'm gonna try this, I'm gonna try that, and I'm gonna try this. So one of the most important things we do with every business unit is start with saying, we care. And it reminds me that I was interviewed by a couple of organizations, uh, an organizational development professor from a major university a few years ago. And after a two hour conversation, he said to me, he said, you know, the first CEO I've ever talked to and didn't talk about his product the entire interview. Hmm. And I said, we've been talking about our product for the last two hours. It's our people. Right. right. So I think when you articulate what you believe in, which is our guiding principle of leadership, which starts the overriding statement is we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. Here's how we touch the lives of people. Now let's live to those standards. And the first thing we do when we acquire a company, the speech I gave on Thursday afternoon in, on the coast of France to our new team members in Paris and in, in, in France, we believe in you. We are here to create a better future for you in the process. All of us can move forward together. Now let's go do some good things together. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's getting people to understand what, I lo- what I'm hearing in all this and what I absolutely love is like you're getting people to understand they're part of something bigger than themselves and that they matter, they're important. Exactly. Important. exactly. Yeah. And, and that's when people share their gifts fully. Do you honestly think people in this country, if they're three out of four disengaged and 88% feel they work for a company that doesn't care about it, do you think people are really sharing their gifts? Absolutely Or is not. it all about the cost? Yep. And, you know, because right now we're in a numbers-driven quarterly focused death death spiral, okay? Uh, nobody can make good long-term decisions because everybody's focused on this quarter, the next quarter, the next quarter. So we do things to make the quarter look good, but we don't think to make our future look better. Okay, so it's, we, we've, got, we've got to take our eye off and say, how are we, are we for these lives entrusted to us? In our case, 8,500 lives, lives entrusted to us. Are we giving them a good future? Are we taking into consideration all of our stakeholders? And the answer, my experience and my exposure to business, this is so outside the norm of the dialogue. Example, Richard, I'll use the example. Hewlett Packard lays off 5,000 people. The share price goes up. Why? Well, because obviously they're going to make more money. Well, what about the 5,000 people? Who cares? Yeah. You see the share price went up? I mean, our job is the shareholders. Who cares about the fact, you know, 
we always need to eliminate a little fat. It's probably good for a company. You know, Jack Wells said, lay off the bottom 10% all the time. So, you know, we've got a lot of, but this is the dialogue. I mean, the CEO of that company that just laid off people would probably go to dinner that and have a cocktail and say, hey, you know, see our share price went up. They say, yeah, you know, we, we uh, been tough. But nobody talked about the 5,000 people who were told to clean out their desks by 5 o'clock, okay? So we have a system that is totally related to short-term short-term thinking, and, and, and we don't care. And so, you know, Walmart uh, recently uh, announced, I happened to be down there visiting that day, they announced that they were going to raise, which is a national political uh, agenda, to raise the minimum wage to $10 an hour. So Walmart, with 2.2 million employees, announced that they were going to raise their minimum compensation from whatever it is to $10 an hour over time. I think it was, I heard it was going to cost them a billion dollars, whatever it was. Uh, but the share price went down. They're going because they're going to pay people better. Uh, don't want to do that. Okay, so we it means their costs are going to go up, and so their earnings are going to go down. So we're going to lower the share price. So we have a system that is destructive to the future of our companies. And so I would say to you, uh, it's a sickness and it's getting worse. We want it and we want it now. Yeah, that's the problem. It's short-term thinking. It's, it's, it's exactly. anything. And, and, it's a- and, and you get a dopamine hit. You know, you lay off 5,000 people and your share price went up. We ought to do that more often. You're a genius, yeah. Yeah, you're a genius. And so we have a very broken system because who talks about the human element? And I and I don't mean Richard being nice to people. There's a lot of companies that are nice to people. Yeah, but I would even take it even further. It's like who's talking about the human element? Who's talking about leaving a legacy or creating a legacy or or getting to that level of leadership where long after the Bob Chapmans of the world gone, that everything keeps going and keep not even just keeps going, but it keeps growing. And um, you know, that's you, what Simon and I are trying to do. Yes, that's our I, our leadership. Uh, principle is defined is called L3. You talked about legacy. Our L, we, we, we abandon the word lean because lean is all about waste elimination. And I think it's, it's the wrong reason. And, and we, we change the name to living legacy of leadership. Leadership principles so profound, they'll stand the test of time. Yes. So our focus is on leadership principles that will be good stewards of all stakeholders over time. And every time somebody presents a vision, they have to say to us, why are you taking your people to a better place? There's a great analogy. You've heard the idea uh, from one of our great authors that we need to, you need to get the right people on the bus. Right. Okay. That's not much of a derivative of you need to lay off the bottom 10% because there's some people you don't want on the bus, right? Right. So let's focus on getting the right people on the bus. To me, it is all wrong, Richard. The idea is... We need to build a safe bus, which is the business model. You need to build a safe bus, and then you need drivers who know how to drive safely and know where they're going. And then anybody that gets on the bus is going to go to a good place. We got to focus on the wrong thing because you got to focus on both. You need a business. If you care about people, you've got to care that you're inviting them to a safe place. Because you can be a nice place and be in the wrong business and, you know, you could be in Kodak, you know, one day or Polaroid uh, or NCR Corporation that made cash register. And one day you got to go to people and say, sorry, can't do anything about it. The technology has left us behind. So it's very important when we design our business models that we're designing a safe bus that gives people 
as best we are able to a good future so they can put their trust in us. Yeah. And, and we need to have leaders who know how to drive that bus safely so that everybody on the bus is going to get to the future and have a chance to be a part of an organization that cares about them. Yeah. It is so clear that it's, it's, a, it's the right blend between a, a thoughtful business strategy and good leadership. So you can have a great business strategy and have crappy leadership. Okay, right. or You can mutilate people. And I can give you, I'm not going to name, there's a lot of examples of very successful companies with horrible cultures. Absolutely. They're still successful because they created shareholder value, but they were brutal in their culture. Okay. Yep. So they, they hurt a lot of people, but made a lot of money. Is that okay? Does the ends justify the means? In my view, if we embrace truly human leadership, which is stewardship of the lives entrusted to you, and we build business models as best we are able to save buses, okay? And then we create leaders who care for the people who they are, invite into the bus and make sure they're taking them to a good spot. The world would be a dramatically better place for you and generations to come. Amen. You know, at the end of the day, culture eats strategy for lunch every single day. And so. But it's not. You can't have one without the other. That's right. Okay. But you got to. You can't like have you said, a great culture and not have a business strategy. Okay. I know that great statement, culture eats strategy. But in my opinion, they are walking down the street hand in hand helping each other all along. Absolutely. But I guess my point of it was, is like you could have a great strategy, like you were saying, and your culture's not there, you're not going to succeed. You know, no, you- no, no. Don't say that, Richard. I do not agree with that. There are many companies that have horrible cultures. And, you know, I understand people have told me, Simon told me that the culture uh, Apple was horrible. I mean, Steve Jobs was ruthless. And I know other examples that I don't want to name where the CEO drove results ruthlessly. Well, okay? yeah, I, I see what you're saying, okay. but I guess they had a good, they had a good, they had financial, phenomenal successful success over many, many quarters, years, but it was ruthlessly driven. I mean, every, I'll sacrifice you to make my number because I am proud of my tradition. Right. I don't care about you. I care about my legacy of making a financial, I'm going to be known for successive quarters of quarterly gains and the share price going from $10 to $100 over five years, whatever. And that's where, how we met. That's why we changed our definition of success. Well, yeah, me. that's the point. We manage success yep. by the way we touch the lives of people, our shareholders, our team members, our customers, our communities. There's a lot of people we touch when we do this and we need to think about that. And when we create that environment, it's unbelievable what ordinary people will do. They will do extraordinary things when given shared visions. Do you know how many people go home every night wondering how they're doing? There's no scoreboard in most businesses. When we watch sports, the players can look up at the score at any one point in time and know how they're doing. In business, we have no idea what the score is. Hey, we heard, but we don't know. So we go do our job as best we can try to enjoy it as best we can. We get hit over the head 10 times, come back because it's a job. We need the job. Right. So it's, as Simon said, we're killing our people. We're killing them. Well, like you said, you're absolutely right. How you define success is the key. And I think you're right. I think you and I are on the same page. If, if redefine how we, you know, look at the definition of success and throw it on its head, because that's what I bet about, you know, if your strategy is, 
decent when your culture is just really out of the, out of the ballpark, you're really going to be successful. I think in the in the terms that you and I are talking about. Yeah, and my, that's that's the reason. Uh, probably ten years ago now, our marketing team was putting together a DVD video of the company because somebody had said to us, "Boy, you know, you really got a unique company." This good ten years ago, and you need to share it. You got to use multimedia uh, to share it. So we created this video of our journey, and and they they were coming to the end. It was the time of Enron and uh, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, and it was kind of a demoralizing time, you know, Arthur Anderson disappearing. And 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 it was in that environment that that video was being created. And at the end of it, our team wanted to define success as growth in revenue, growth in profits, growth in share value, growth in team members. And, and you know, I was overwhelmed by how many people I know that are considered very successful have miserable lives. Right. But we define success as money, power, and position. So as long as you have money, power, and position, you must be successful, right? Well, if you go home to a broken family and you're miserable. And uh, and so I, I said that day when the team came to me with how are we going to end this video, I said, and it just came to me, we're going to measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. That has, for us, Richard, changed everything. I love it. Because we, we didn't have it. We had... You know, if you asked us what success was, it'd be growth and profits and share value, because that's the only, you know, that's really what we thought of. But that day, given the scandals that were going on in, in all aspects of our lives, uh, we said, no, we're going to measure success by the way we touch lives of people. We're going to keep in mind our, all of our stakeholders. There's a lot of people impacted by what we do, our suppliers. So it really changed. We, we have the wrong definition of success yes. in this it is all monetary position of power. We introduce people by those factors, not wonderful father, loving citizen, you know, contributor to our better society. We just define success wrong. And, and therefore, people strive to success in a monetary power uh, venue. And, and we, we need to redefine success. And that's why we define success as the way we touch the lives of people. Well, I absolutely love what you're doing. Consider me in your corner, helping you fight the fight in any way that I can. I, uh, I love what you do. I love your company. I'm so uh, privileged to have, have met you. How can people get in touch with you and, and learn more about you? Well, I, I, we do have a blog, trulyleadership.com, and we also have events called Beyond Benchmarking because what happened, uh, Richard, is that people like Simon, Bill Urey, uh, Sri Kumar Rao, Amy Cuddy started hearing about this through the you know, various informal, and they came to see if it's real. And they kept saying to us, I can't believe it. I've never seen anything like this. So what we did was we decided rather than just having this, you know, flow of people is that we're going to design a purposeful event called Beyond Benchmarking where we invite people who are interested, and again, we, they're selling out, to come down and take a deep two-day purposeful dive into our culture, and then it's up to them to see what they're going to do with it. So we have these beyond benchmarking events right now. People can read a lot about it. There's a lot of video content, as you know, uh, on, on, on our website, on YouTube. You can go put in Barry Waymiller, barry-waymiller.com, and there's there's dozens, I think, of video links. 
You can go to our blog, which uh, trulyhumanleadership.com. You can go to Barry Waymiller's website, where we have a lot of it, barry-waymiller.com. So there's a lot of there's a lot out there. We, you know, we're a privately company that's very public. Our goal, and Simon's goal, passion is to bring about a change from management to leadership, so that we can dramatically address the issues that we face in our families, in our communities, in our country, in the world. We honestly believe this is the answer to world peace because when people feel valid, validated, they have better human relationships. They learn to listen to people, not talk to people. And that we believe that a lot of the issues we see in our schools, our families, our communities will dissipate because business is the most, could be the most powerful force for good because we have people's lives in our hands for 40 hours a week. They spend more time with us than they do their family. And if we treat them with respect and dignity and allow them to find their gifts, regardless of their position, and celebrate them being the best person they can be, we can be good stewards of these lives and create the kind of world that we want to bring our next generation into, where people will be feel validated for who they are regardless of their level of achievement. Because really, we just want to celebrate people being the best person they are as true success, not necessarily being president of the United States or president of the company or or the vice president of sales. We want people to feel good for whoever they were meant to be and allow them to find that. And when we have that kind of world, then we have a kind of world that I believe will be full of less conflict and more joy and more meaning and purpose. And, and we have a generation, millenniums, who come up right now who are looking at this world and, and not wanting to be a part. Uh, I understand that if you interview high school students right now, most people don't want to go into business. They want to go into nonprofits because they don't see business as anything for good. It seems to be for greed, corruption and greed and self-interest. And so. We can profoundly change the world and we don't need any miracle drug. We don't need any government. We just need to care. And that's the message I'd leave to your followers. It just starts with caring. Caring about the people whose lives you touch through the economic entity that you, organization you create. Whether you're nonprofit, profit, nurses, hospitals, the military, is simply focus on caring. Uh, And leaders eat last. Okay, well said. Caring for the people whose lives are entrusted to you. All right, Bob. Well said. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And again, I look forward to staying in touch with you and helping you in your cause any way I can. I appreciate you coming on Dose of Leadership. You, you handled it very well, and it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.
If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money. 